the book of Genesis. And so I want to go back to Jacob. Last Sunday, we took a break and we studied a parable of Jesus. But I want to get back to the life of Jacob and talk about this story in Genesis 32. You know, Jacob's life really represents the life of the people of Israel. When Israel read these stories of Jacob's life, they were supposed to see something of their life and their journey as a people in Jacob's story. And I believe it's my contention that we as the new covenant people of God can look at the life of these Old Testament saints like Jacob, the great patriarch, and learn something about his life and see how it connects to our own journey of faith. I think Jacob's life is a great example of how an encounter with God can transform a person's life. Because as we have seen the stories of Jacob, we have seen that he he was a self-centered, deceiving man. After this encounter that we're going to read about in just a minute or talk about, he becomes more of a God-fearing man. He becomes more God-dependent. You could call Jacob a self-made man, but after this experience, he's a new man. He's been, in a sense, remade by God. He still has flaws. He's not perfect, but his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. His sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. This event, this story, is the culminating event, I believe, in Jacob's life. And we see God working powerfully in his life and through him after this. And so I want us to look at this story and think about how we relate to it in terms of our own faith journey. It starts with a crisis. Um, verse 22 says that same night he arose and took his wives and uh, his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. What had happened that night is that he had, he, what had happened that day is that he had found out that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, with a small army, with the militia. And you remember how Jacob had crossed his brother several times. Okay, and what we learn in Genesis 27 in the, is that Esau had had enough and he said, I'm going to kill my brother. You think family dysfunction is a new thing? You think it's bad now? I mean, it goes back to the beginning after the Garden of Eden. We remember that Jacob took Esau's birthright. He finagled away to get Esau's inheritance this is in chapter 25. Esau was in a moment of weakness. He was famished. He was starving. Esau was a man of impulses. Jacob saw his opportunity to get the inheritance that belongs to the firstborn. And he says to his starving brother, sell me your birthright for this pot of stew. And Esau falls for it. That's chapter 25. Then chapter 27, Jacob steals Esau's blessing this is the blessing that Isaac is going to or intends to give to the firstborn. This is the patriarchal blessing. This is the blessing that contains God's promise that you will be a father of a great nation, Israel. And this nation is going to bless the entire world 
And once again, Jacob sees an opportunity. And he, as you know, if you've read the story in Genesis 27, he disguises himself as Esau. He goes into his father's presence. His father is ailing. His father is blind. He tricks his father and he gets that patriarchal blessing. Esau has had enough. Esau seeks revenge. And so it seems that the day of reckoning has finally arrived for Jacob. And Jacob has always had a way of getting his way. Jacob has been very clever. He's a man with a lot of tricks up his sleeve. At this point in his life, he's wealthy and he's prosperous, but he's on the run and he finally realizes, you know what, I am not going to get out of this one on my own when he hears that his brother is coming with 400 men. And then in Genesis 32, it's not in our text today, but we see Jacob praying for the first time to God. He prays his first prayer of petition. And it went like this. Lord, I'm afraid. I'm terrified. We might say today, the teenagers would say, I'm freaking out. Because my brother seeks to kill me. Deliver me, Lord. That's in the earlier chapter, uh, verses of Genesis. I'm afraid. Deliver me. And now he's alone, and this is significant. He is by the river Jabbok, which is um, in Jordan. It's the Blue River now. It's called the Blue River in Jordan, I believe. But it's right on the border of the Promised Land. God is calling Jacob back into the Promised Land, but God has to do something in Jacob's life before he can go into the Promised Land, before he can become the leader that God wants him to be. God's got to deal with Jacob. And that's what's happening here in this story. He's in a place of fear and crisis. And here's really the first point I want to make this morning as it relates to us. I have often found, and I know your stories, many of your stories, and I know you found this too, that God has to get us to a place of crisis. Oftentimes, to start dealing with us, to get our attention. God has to put us in a place where we realize this is bigger than I am. I don't have the resources. God has to get us to a place where our self-sufficiency runs out and we have to look to him. And that's what's happening in Jacob's life. I read an article recently entitled, get this, this is by Laura Turner, The Gift of Anxiety. The gift of anxiety. And that caught my attention because I have struggled with anxiety in my life. I've struggled with panic attacks and I never considered it really a gift. But then when I started reading the article, I could relate to what she was saying. Because she says in this article how her experience of anxiety and fear and how her experience of a crisis begins to focus her attention on God. It narrows the scope of her attention. And she has this wonderful image. She says this in the midst of my fear, I measure my attention in teaspoons rather than platefuls. And what ends up happening is that fear makes me so aware of my need for God that I gobble up teaspoon after teaspoon of him. I wonder if anybody can relate that the crisis, the struggle the pain, the fear, the anxiety has this narrowing function in our life. And we began to understand that we need God in that moment. 
like we've never understood before. And maybe somebody here this morning is in a place like that. Maybe here this morning there's somebody in a crisis situation or somebody who's facing a difficulty and they recognize they come to this state of honesty with God. I don't have the resources to deal with this. Well, I I commend the prayer of Jacob to you. I don't commend a lot that Jacob did. But this I commend to pray that prayer. Lord, I'm afraid. Lord, this is too big for me. Deliver me. Work in my life. Rescue me. And so that's what Jacob has prayed in his state of crisis. And then God responds in this mysterious way. He has this mysterious experience of wrestling with God. And it is mysterious. I don't quite understand all that's happening. I'm going to be honest. I don't quite understand all that's happening in this text. I studied it pretty deeply this week, and I still there are questions that I can't quite answer. I think it's meant to be somewhat ambiguous. So we keep coming back with it. And we wrestle with this scene of God wrestling with Jacob. But one difficulty is who exactly is uh, Jacob wrestling with? You know, it starts off, he wrestles with a man. And then at the end, he talks about wrestling with God, that he has seen uh, God, that he has striven with God. So sometimes in the Bible, um, an encounter with an angel, the angel of the Lord, Sometimes people encounter an angel of the Lord and later on in the narrative, it'll talk about them encountering God. It's like the angel represents a manifestation of the Lord. And some people think that's what's happening here. But we see that, for example, in um, Judges chapter six, when Gideon encounters the angel of the Lord, it's clear at the beginning, it says this is an angel. And then at the end, it talks about him dealing with the Lord, encountering God himself. So. This could be an angel of the Lord, or this could be somehow the Lord himself. I just don't exactly know. So we're going to call this a divine encounter. And I'm going to go ahead and say it's it's God, because one way or the other, God is dealing with Jacob here. God is initiating this wrestling match with Jacob. And now here's another question I wrestled with this week. If Jacob is wrestling God, or a manifestation of God, or an angel of the Lord... Why is it really even much of a match? Why is there a struggle here? Why does it go on to the break of day? I mean, don't you think that supernatural power trumps natural power any day of the week? What is happening here? And this is the way I thought about it. You can you can come to your own conclusions, but this is the way that I made sense. You know, God sometimes limits his power in interacting with his people. And he 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 comes down to our same level. To interact with us. And I thought about it like this. When when my son Noah, who's now 14 and a half, was was younger. I used to and I still do play ball with him. I play sports with him. Baseball in the backyard, basketball in the driveway. And, you know, he came up to about here on me. And and uh, when I played with him, obviously, I could have beat him at any time. I had the athletic ability and the strength. Now he can beat me. I'm sorry to say, I mean, his. His, his shoe size bigger than me. That was a wake up call. And 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 then he's beat me when I've gone full strength on the basketball court. So that's not fun to be in that. But that's where we're at now. But back then I played with him basically, you know, kind of like with one hand tied behind my back, so to speak. Why? Because I wanted to be with him. I wanted to interact with him. I wanted to teach him. 
It wouldn't do any good just to trample right over him. But I wanted to teach him something about the game. I wanted to see his competitive nature come out, his fire come out. And so so I, I held back in order to be with him and to teach him something. The Lord's wanting to teach something to Jacob here. And the lesson is humility. He's humbling Jacob in this encounter because Jacob is striving with all his might, with all his strength in this wrestling match. And this is what Jacob has done his whole life. He strives. He grasps. He does what he can in his own strength. And at the end of the match, all the Lord does is touch his hip and it goes out of joint. All the Lord does is touch his hip and his hip is dislocated. And I think that's humbling to Jacob. And for the rest of his life, he's going to remember that touch because he's going to walk with a limp. And so somebody said, an an old commentator said this, as the hard, stiff, corded muscle shriveled, so shriveled his pride and self-reliance. Before Jacob can get into the promised land, he's got to be humbled by God. Before Jacob can go into the promised land, he's got to learn to be God-dependent, not self-sufficient. And friends, that's the same way with us today. Jesus teaches the same thing. Humility is the path to the promised land. Humility is the path to the kingdom of God. Humility is the path to God's salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ. Just think about some of the things that Jesus said. Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of God. You can't get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, humble, dependent. Jesus said, the humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. And so we have to come to this place of humility in order to enter the promised land of God's salvation. And where's the place of humility right now? Where's the wrestling mat with God right now? It's the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the place of humility. That's the place where God wrestles with sinners. The cross is a place of humility. The cross is a place of humility because the cross tells us that our works are not good enough to earn salvation. Our, our good works are supposedly good works. And we're in this place we're we're all of us relatively good people. And we can look out in the world and see what's going on and we can say we're, we're better than a lot of the stuff that we see happening in the news. We're better than those sorts of people. So by relative standards, all of us in this room are pretty good people. And we like to think of ourselves as good people in relative to the rest of the world. Most of us are pretty good people. There might be a few scoundrels in here. But relative to God's standard of goodness, perfection, holiness, we don't match up. And so the cross tells us I'm not good enough to earn my way to heaven, to earn salvation. There's no room for boasting at the cross of Jesus. The cross is humbling because it tells me my sin is that bad. Bad enough for the very son of God to offer this bloody sacrifice. To meet God's justice. 
The cross is a place of humility because it tells me of God's overwhelming love for me in spite of my sin. I don't know. Have you ever had somebody do something to you or for you that's so loving and so good and so extraordinary that it's humbling for you because you think, I just I really don't deserve this. And it's a humbling experience. Well, if you understand God's holiness and your sin, and yet you look at the cross and the overwhelming love of God there. That's a place of humility. So. This is the place where God meets us today to humble us. It's a humbling love. It's a severe mercy. And I think as we get older. Now, I I know as, as we get older, past the teenage years, usually it takes some teenagers learn this. But we learn that humility is really the key to growth. Humility is really the key to success. There was a study done some time ago. I think I've referred to this before. It's a study of CEOs in various industries, and they looked at what is the common trait of these CEOs that were very successful. And they found the surprising trait was, in many of them, a humility. These are people who've reached the pinnacle of their industry, but they're humble. They learn from other people. They're willing to look at different perspectives. I also read an article just this week of a major league baseball scout who's just retired. And he was one of these guys that everybody looked up to in the industry. He was able to find diamonds in the rough. He was looking at players that other people, other scouts would overlook. And they said, what was it about the way that you recruited people? What did you see in these folks that the others didn't see? And he said, well, you know, they had to have the talent. They had to have the physicality. But I looked for humility. The way he put it was, are they teachable? When we bring them into the big leagues, are they going to listen? Are they willing to learn? Humility is the key to growth. We understand that. Why is it that our culture today, when it comes to spiritual things, doesn't think about the spiritual life in the same way? Why is it what our culture teaches us when it comes to spiritual reality and spiritual growth is it's all about you. You look within yourself. You find your own wisdom. You find your own way. You look at the the God or the goddess within. You try to figure it out on your own using your own intellect. I mean, we understand how humility works in other areas of life. But when it comes to spiritual life, our culture is preaching a message of spiritual pride. That's what it's a witness to. It's a witness to spiritual pride. And we have to resist that because God wants to bring us to this place of salvation, which requires humility. And the place is the foot of the cross. That's where human pride is shattered. And you got to get there. You got to go through there to get to the promised land. And I love the end of this passage. It says that. In verse 31, the sun rose upon Jacob as he passed Penuel limping. Because of his hip, doesn't that just kind of give you a, a picture of him, you know, going Going into the sun. I'm not sure what direction he was going. Or away from the sun in the morning. But limping as he went. An old minister was asked, how do you know if somebody's really met God? And he said, he limps. She limps. Meaning, they're humble. Because they've encountered God. So, you have the crisis. You have the experience of humility being humbled by God. And then... 
from that place of crisis, of difficulty, of suffering, and then humility is the place of blessing. God blesses Jacob. And in this encounter with God here, in this wrestling, Jacob, who has always grasped the blessing for himself, he knows he needs to be blessed by God, but he's had his own way of getting that blessing, scheming to get the blessing. Now he's grabbing on to the Lord here and saying, I need you to bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so God blesses him and bestows upon Jacob a new name. Verse 27, God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, which means deceiver, but Israel. For you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. God doesn't give Jacob his name, but God gives Jacob a new name. Israel, Israel. And a new name means a new identity. And a new identity means a new way of being, a new direction in life. And that's what happens when we have come to Jesus Christ. He gives us a new name and a new identity. And this story was written so that Israel would see that that's who they are as the people of God. These are the people of God who need to understand that their striving and their own resources are not going to obtain the blessing of God. They've got to go to God themselves. They've got to wrestle with God himself to get the blessing. And that's what it means to be part of the people of God. We're God wrestlers. The people who deal with the living God. And we look to him for blessing. Well, I wonder, friends, how many of us this morning can thank God that he's wrestled with us. Can you see something of your journey, your faith journey in this story? Can you look back on your life and see the way that God has used some crises, some suffering, some illness, some difficulty, some fear and anxiety to draw you back to himself, to get our attention on him? Can you be grateful to God this morning that he's taught you humility at the foot of the cross? Can you be thankful to God this morning that he's given you a new name and a new nature and a new direction in life? Is there anybody who is here this morning who can say, you know what, I'm not a self-made man. I'm not a self-made woman. I'm a God-made man, a God-made woman. I am who I am because of what God has shown me and what God has done for me in the Son, Jesus Christ. And in him, I found blessing. In him, I found purpose. In him, I found meaning and significance. And if you can't say that this morning, if you can't join in that course of praise, then I want you to know God is here willing and ready to meet you. You don't have to wait for the crisis. You don't have to wait for God to get you down on the wrestling mat. You don't have to wait for the suffering to come. Right here and right now, God can meet you. Jacob says that he has seen the face of God and he calls it Peniel, the place where he encountered God, the place of God's face. And Jesus said that if you've seen him, you've seen the father. You want to see the face of God, look to his son, Jesus Christ. And he's here today. We can encounter God through Jesus Christ. And I think that's a good thought for us to have as we continue on in this service as we approach the Lord's table. Because when we come to the table, we come like this. 
empty-handed. And we're saying to the Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, I'm coming in humility, and I'm coming to receive what you offer here at the cross. I'm coming to receive the forgiveness I need. I'm coming to receive the strength I need. I'm coming to receive the grace that I need. And he is here to meet us. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, help us to look at our lives and see your hand at work. Help us to see the way that you have used crises, pain, to draw us to you. We don't relish those times, Lord, or those experiences and the ones that are to come. But we know that you use them for your good. And we thank you that you use them to draw us closer to you. We thank you, O God, that you have taught us in our life humility, and it's a lesson we need to learn time and time again. We thank you, God, that you've restored us and given us a new name. I pray for anyone here who cannot relate to this story, this has not been their spiritual journey, that they would hear you saying to them to look to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to find the blessing that they're striving for in him the forgiveness of sins, the hope of the everlasting life, the power of the Spirit to live a new life. We thank you that it's all in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.